0: Hello, and welcome to Assigned Scientist at Bachelors. I'm Charles, and I'm an entomologist.
1: And I'm Tessa, and I'm an astrobiologist.
0: And today it's just the two of us for an episode that was going to be our Valentine's Day episode, but then I procrastinated doing research, and Tessa (laughs) forgot that we were recording.
1: Yeah, pretty much.
0: But now it's just... I
1: mean, close enough.
0: Close enough. Days are fake. So... I started doing research for Valentine's Day episode thinking, and my initial thought was, let's do more weird bug sex, because that's always a crowd pleaser. Mm. But then I thought, Valentine's Day is not, you know, a Dionysian celebration of excess. It's a day for romance. So then I thought, I'll look into mating rituals, like courtship rituals of different insects. And the first thing that I thought of was this very, well-described courtship behavior in the species Blatella Germanica, or the German cockroach. But while I was researching that, I found a paper addressing sort of genetic determinations of sexual differentiation in insects, genetic uh, control of behavior, and also how well-established in the insect family tree these genetic controls of behavior are. And that is what I will be telling you about today. Specifically, the fruitless gene originally described in Drosophila melanogaster and then later manipulated in Platella germanica. So basically, the fruitless gene was identified in Drosophila melanogaster because as we've talked about before, Drosophila melanogaster is like the model organism For genetics, right? Yep. They're commonly known as quote-unquote fruit flies. Those in the know might actually call them vinegar flies, but if you're actually in the know enough to call them vinegar flies, you're probably just going to call them Drosophilidae anyway because you're an entomologist. (laughs) Um, And I always have to bring this up because my master's work was on the fly family Eulidaeity, which is in the superfamily Tefertoidia, named for the family Tephritidae, and those are the fruit flies. And I think, you know, we can get into sort of the philosophy and politics of, of insect common names, but just looking at it, fruit flies, as in Drosophila, as in Drosophilidae, are known as fruit flies because they are often found when you have like rotting fruit in your kitchen, right? Because they, like many other flies, lay eggs In rotting substrates, like dead stuff, basically. Right. This is very, very common in flies. It's kind of the defining sort of life characteristic of true flies, really, where they love to lay their eggs in very soft environments where the maggots can hatch out of the eggs. And then they're kind of just living in a daze of soft, high-nutrient sludge until they pupate.
1: Usually, like in like labs it's usually like potatoes
0: yeah so you know that can be fruit it can be poop it can be bodies you know whatever you like whereas Tefridity is primarily phytophagus and this is all kind of beside the point but it's nobody respects true flies enough i'm gonna change that hmm. And if i can't change it i'm gonna make everybody listen to me talk about it anyway but essentially Primarily phytophagous, meaning that they don't just colonize dead plants. They colonize living ones, baby. So tefritids will actually lay their eggs inside living plant tissue. And because of that, a lot of tefritids are well-known and well-hated pests on agricultural crops, right?
1: Right. Yeah, I kind of figured that would be the natural result of that.
0: So my feeling is... Tefritids really deserve the name of fruit flies because to Drosophilids, they could be laying their eggs in any old thing. Whereas Tephritids are laying their eggs specifically in living fruits. Uh, Thank you for coming to my TED talk. Mm -hmm. But actually, as as another point, Tephritoids are interesting because most flies, they just all have lost the true ovipositor. But Tephritoids have re-evolved an extension of their abdomen to serve as an ovipositor. So it is not the same, stru- it is not like the same physical structure that exists ancestrally that you-
1: Right, it's a different one that's been repurposed.
0: Yeah, it is basically like, we have, as humans, lost our tails, but it's like, what if we evolved so that just an extension of our butt looked like a tail? Hmm. And that's what tefertoids have basically done Anyway, so the fruitless gene was identified in Drosophila because, uh, not because it's unique to Drosophila, but just because Drosophila, specifically Drosophila melanogaster, is the species that everybody was doing all of this genetics work on. I was actually, I was doing a research for this episode and I was looking at it and I was like, man, a bunch of these early papers identifying specific genes in Drosophila are from the 90s. And then I was like, yeah, you nerd, because that's right after we developed PCR.
1: Right, right. That's when everybody was sequencing like mad. That's,
0: <laughs> of course, that's when it was, because that's when everybody could do it. Yeah, so the fruitless gene in Identified Drosophila Melanogaster is known to control courtship rituals. So Drosophila Melanogaster males have this whole sequence of behaviors that they will do to initiate copulation with females of their species. And according to the description on the gene brief, On the website of the Society of Developmental Biology, quote, Fru encodes a set of putative transcription factors that promote male sexual behavior by controlling the development of sexually dimorphic neuronal circuitry. In other words, transcription factors being proteins which control the transcription part of the central dogma of molecular biology. So the central dogma being DNA is just transcribed into RNA and then RNA is translated into proteins. And that is how gene expression works. Right you know, varying parts of that process leads to different gene expression. And so fruitless, along with other genes like sex lethal and double sex, are part of this cascade controlling sexual differentiation in Drosophila, where insects do also use... So like humans, as we're all taught, use chromosomal sex determination, right? Where obviously very simplified... But if you are XX, then you're female. If you're XY, then you're male. Simplify something So this is a trans podcast, whatever,
1: right? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a whole other episode. It's a,
0: which we did an episode about, yeah. which I will link. But the the way that that works really is that during embryological development, the SRY gene from the Y chromosome essentially is like, you're going to do this or you're going to do this. And then the sort of series of sexual changes related to sexual differentiation happen because of the production of estrogens or androgens right where like if you have testosterone then this will happen if you have more estrogen then this will happen etc 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 but that is not how it works in insects where insects do have a chromosomal component different groups of insects have different methods of sex determination because i mean it's a huge group of animals right but Uh, In humans, you know, we have have this one gene, which then leads to whatever, and then a lot of the actual sexual differentiation during development is controlled by hormones, whereas in insects, and specifically in Drosophila, and specifically, specifically with Drosophila melanogaster, it is not that this one gene leads to the production of specific hormones, which then control further differentiation. It is that specific genes... Related to, you know, the chromosomal method of sexual determination lead to these alternative splicings of different genes, which do or do not produce functional proteins. And putting that in, hopefully, a, a more accessible way, when I, I, earlier I mentioned the central dogma of molecular biology, right, where DNA is transcribed to RNA and RNA is translated to proteins, which is basically just meaning DNA is what we think of as your genetic code. That is what you have inherited from your parents. That's kind of the like the blueprints of whatever, and then to make those blueprints into the house, that is your body. Um, first, you know that's a metaphor that really stalls out because there's kind of no intermediate step between blueprints and building, in the way that there is between DNA and proteins. But basically, you have DNA, and then the DNA gets transcribed into RNA which is just another form of nucleic acids, right? And so RNA then is used to translate into proteins, where like going down, reading the RNA, we have these three base pairs, and then you get these whole big structures of proteins based on all of the different amino acids and how they're connected to each other and the order in which they're translated. And then the idea here with alternative displacing is that males and females have like the same whole gene fruitless, but because of whether they have been determined to be male or female earlier on in development, other genes double sex and sex lethal again, which sounds so metal Hmm. The way that those genes have been transcribed and then translated results in functional proteins, which then control how fruitless goes through that whole process from DNA to proteins, where in males, it will go this one route, and then in females, it will go this other route. But it's not because they had they had like different copies of the same gene. It is because earlier in the process of like sexual differentiation, other genes have been spliced and other proteins have been made such that that kind of keeps the male or female developmental pathway rolling forward. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Genetics, you know what I mean? Essentially, in the 90s, people discovered, first of all, they discovered fruitless as a gene, and then they were figuring out what it did. They do what all those wacky geneticists are always doing, which is they created and then made it and experimented on, et cetera, et cetera, mutants. And so they found, uh, quote, when fruit mutant males are grouped together, they form male-male courtship chains in which each male is simultaneously both courting and being courted All mutant combinations show some male-male chaining.
1: Interesting. The geneticists are making the frickin' fruit flies gay.
0: Alex Jones was so upset about the frogs, he was looking in the wrong place. And so, because of research done on fruitless and mutations thereof, it has come up repeatedly as an important piece of evidence in discussions over to what degree complex behavior is learned versus genetic given that there is apparently a very straightforward relationship between the fruitless gene and courtship behavior including abnormalities in some aspects of courtship using appendages that are otherwise unaffected so for example part of the stereotyped courtship behavior of drosophila melanogaster males towards females are a wing display described in one paper as quote singing a species-specific courtship song by extending one of his wings and vibrating it. And so they, the mutant, the fruitless mutants, fail at doing this aspect, but it's not a mechanical or a physiological problem with their wings because their general ability to fly and other uses of wings are not affected. It is specifically the failure to perform that courtship behavior.
1: Well, I mean, are we sure that this is like because they're male male or is it just because they've got no game
0: i mean i think it seems to be kind of be both oh gotcha, we're like gotcha. yeah, yeah yeah there are different aspects i think that are and this is deeper into the sort of the genetics literature than i felt it was responsible to go given <laughs> that i have a bunch of other stuff that i need to be doing but it, it seems like different specific mutations result in a variety of ways that males can fail. So it's not just turning the freaking bugs gay. It's also, like, inability to initiate courtship behaviors or inability to complete the whole stereotype sequence. Mm -hmm. And then also, interestingly, in 2005, several researchers completed, quote, gene targeting by homologous recombination to generate alleles of fruit that are constitutively spliced in either the male or female mode, just meaning that they, like, took flies and they did some genetics trickery right so that otherwise quote-unquote normal females would have the male splicing pattern of fruitless and otherwise quote-unquote normal males would have the female pattern and they found that in the quote-unquote normal females splicing in the male pattern resulted in those flies demonstrating typical courtship behavior towards other females and in males spliced in the female pattern the loss of courtship behavior and quote orientation, meaning that they then were doing courtship towards males rather than females. So that's kind of a general introduction to the fruitless gene and just the idea that there is this gene that is very well documented, very well understood, lots of research about it in Drosophila melanogaster, which is known and has been demonstrated to control um, the specific stereotype courtship behavior. And so, then taking a step sideways briefly, I would love to discuss Blatella Germanica, also known as the German cockroach. I would ask if you have seen one of these cockroaches before, but the answer is almost certainly that you have. Oh, yeah. Yep. But you mm-hmm. may, you probably didn't recognize it as the quote unquote German cockroach when you did.
1: Potentially. I don't know how many other varieties there are here in Phoenix. A
0: variety. So, Blatella Germanica belongs to the extreme, extreme, I'll say it again, extreme minority of cockroach species, which are established as, quote-unquote, pests, where there are over 4,000 described species of cockroaches, not even including termites, which is another episode for another day, but over 4,000 species, and only like 30 of them are really well established as, quote-unquote, pests in human homes, Mm -hmm. and yet... All anybody ever wants to talk about. We're
1: getting a bad rap man.
0: It's unbelievable. Especially because, here's here's my little bugaboo. It is very, 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 very extremely common to see cockroaches brought up as a health concern because of their ability to mechanically transmit pathogens. Mechanically not being, you know, they're getting in a forklift and transferring around. But mechanically as in pathogens get on them. They get on other stuff, the pathogens get on the other stuff, right? But a lot of times when people bring this up, they either don't justify it at all or they appeal to like very controlled experimental settings in which it is demonstrated that they can do this. But I, the evidence that cockroaches are demonstrably a significant source of pathogen transmission through them walking through pathogen somewhere and then walking through another area and getting them somewhere. And then that being a significant source of health problems. I'm just saying, if you've got it, send it to me. Cause I haven't seen it. Hmm. And I will say it's, you know, not to minimize, Cockroaches as a potential health concern, because particularly if you have large aggregations, cockroaches do produce allergens, which can upset anybody, but are especially a problem if you have some kind of a respiratory condition, for example, right. if you're asthmatic. But like in my previous apartment, I was living on the ground floor and I had two doors, right? So sometimes I would find a random cockroach in my apartment, inevitably. Mm. But I didn't freak out about it, first of all, because I'm the number one friend to cockroaches and they know that I love them. And then also because a singular cockroach coming into your house from outdoors, even a couple of cockroaches that you just see sometimes you don't need to worry about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's only like, again, there's like massive aggregations of them. massive
0: aggregations are a problem. But if, if you have the conditions for massive aggregations of cockroaches, you have underlying issues.
1: Yeah, I was about to say, you've probably got other bigger problems you have to worry about first.
0: Where it is a, part of the problem that you're facing, but it is not the only problem. Yeah. Like, if you just see a cockroach sometimes in your house... Right. ...respectfully... That's not going to do it, yeah. Get over yourself. Um, (laughs) So back to Blatilla Germanica specifically, it is one of the sort of the classic has species, and it has a basically a distribution all over the world, but pretty much exclusively in close association with humans. And they are small, relatively delicate-looking yellow-brown roaches that are recognizable because they have these two large, distinctive dark stripes on their pronotum. In Plotella Germanica, it's one of those species that carries the Uthika, or egg case, around hanging at the back of the abdomen, <laughs> which is just always very funny. Because it's like, okay. imagine if... Today is just a day of horrifying anatomical analogies. But like, imagine if instead of just giving birth, humans had the whole amniotic sac just hanging out of the vagina for a while. (laughs) Right. Uh, And then when the baby was finally done, it just kind of burst forth. That's kind of that reproductive adaptation in all of these cockroaches that have the uthika just hang. Their abdomen is just partially open. For a while. And as we've said, we've discussed before, the Uthica in cockroaches typically looks like a cute little leather clutch purse. And much like a clutch purse, it kind of opens at one side and all the treasure comes out. And by treasure, I mean a bunch of little cockroaches, little immature cockroaches will emerge when the egg portion of their life is over. Much like, but not on quite the same level of Drosophila melanogaster, Platella germanica is a very well-established model organism. And there's a huge amount of research on Blatella Germanica partially because it is financially and culturally important as a quote-unquote pest species. But also, I think, part of why there are so many studies on Drosophila melanogaster is that there are already so many studies on Drosophila. Like, if you want to dig deep into the genome of an organism, are you going to choose an organism that nobody has sequenced before? Or are you going to choose an organism that already has hundreds of papers published on its genes? Right. Right. If you already know a lot about an organism, it's easier to narrowly, identify specific interesting biological questions because there's all of this general information that's already kind of taken care of
1: right you don't have to like reinvent the wheel right exactly
0: and interestingly Platella germanica also like drosophila melanogaster has a very well-established well-documented courtship ritual between the males and the females to initiate copulation, which was actually initially described like a hundred years ago. People have known how Platilla Germanica gets down for longer than almost any any living person right Mm -hmm. um and so a description from one paper quote in an encounter the male touches the female with the antennae raises the wings upward and then turns around 180 degrees thus exposing the turgal gland to the female the secretion of these glands stimulates the female to mount the male and feed and while the female feeds on the turgal gland the male pushes the abdomen under the female and clasps her genitalia with his left phalomere to accomplish genital connection putting that in it may be more accessible language. Essentially, you start out two cockroaches. One of them is, he was a boy, she was a girl.
1: Can you make it more obvious? Yeah. Exactly.
0: What the male will do is establish, using the antennae, that he is dealing with a female cockroach. <laughs> because Blattella Germanica, unlike fruitless mutants, definitively said, no homo. <clears throat> and so the male establishes that it's a female and then raises his wings up and exposes the upper part of his abdomen. And the turgal gland, basically a turgite is just what we call one of those segments of the abdomen. And so the turgal gland is just a gland on one of those segments. And I did, I did, I spent time looking up the actual contents of the secretion of the turcal gland. And I found it described in one paper as a combination of, quote, oligosaccharides, lipids, and proteins, which basically just means, I don't know, nutrients. Hmm. You know, we're saccharides, sugars, lipids, fats, proteins, protein. And the female is like, well, I'm an insect and therefore always under pressure to find sufficient food to keep my life continuing i'm gonna eat this right and then while the female is feeding the male cockroach smooth as you please essentially starts scooting his abdomen further and further back underneath the female until he's close enough so that the phallomere which is just one of the sort of the accessory parts of the whole genitalic structure can clasp onto the female genitals and then once they're connected, they're connected.
1: So what you're saying is he does he's a gentleman and he does take her out to dinner first.
0: Yes, but in a he's less of a gentleman because he's also kind of pulling the He he's doing basically a, a more sexual version of like sneakily putting your arm around somebody at uh, the movies. Okay. Fair enough. So he's he has first distracted her with popcorn and is now I gotcha. snaking the arm around. But gotcha, instead of an gotcha. arm its genitals, gotcha. You know, as one does. Yeah, 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 I started doing a deep dive into insect genitals and genitalic structures and the evolution thereof, and then I was like, I don't have, I don't have time for this, and also I don't think it's going to be to anybody's benefit except for exclusively mine. <laughs> but an interesting thing about about cockroaches is, is that, like in as we have discussed at length before, insect genitals are very important for a variety of reasons. One is they enable insects to keep making more of them. And a world without insects is no world that I want to live on. And it's also a world that I can't live on. Right. Yeah. We kind of need them. Life as we know it would become impossible. Yeah. But also I really cannot emphasize enough to you and to everybody listening how much time entomologists, especially insect taxonomists have spent collectively looking at documenting measuring, describing, comparing insect genitals. Because of a couple of things. Insect genitals are important for taxonomic descriptions because often, like, if you look up descriptions of a lot of insects, it's like you will recognize it because its genitals look like this. Mm. And they have been used a lot in phylogenetic reconstructions. So in trying to figure out the most likely evolutionary relationships between groups.
1: Right, it makes
0: sense. On the assumption that genitals are the most resistant to sort of general phenotypic plasticity. Right. Phenotypic plasticity being like your phenotype, as in how you look, what your body is like, et cetera, et cetera changing based on environmental conditions. An example of phenotypic plasticity is like the same species of frog might be larger in one year where they had a lot of food available. Right. The ones that develop to adulthood might end up smaller in leaner times. Right. That's phenotypic plasticity. And the assumption then with regards to genitals is that that's much less likely because if you change up the genitals too much, then you won't be able to actually reproduce with the other members of your species. And well, right. that's the ball. Yeah. Game. There's
1: sort of a limit on that.
0: And all of this is like, this is one of those questions that, has been being bat back and forth by evolutionary biologists for, you know, as long as we've had evolutionary biologists, basically. So, you know, I don't want people to to come away from this thinking of being really like hardline supporters of lock and key theory. You know, that's not what I'm supporting, but I'm just saying, I'm trying to emphasize that genitals are, (laughs) just as a fun tangent for me, genitals are really important. I might edit all of that out, but I might leave it in. Mm. Depends on how I'm feeling when I edit this. All that to say is that I started doing a deep dive into genitalic structures and the evolution thereof. And then I was like, I gotta, if I continue this way, I'm not gonna get anything else done. Mm. I'm not gonna get anything else done. So that's all that is to establish that Blatilla Germanica also has not the same courtship ritual, but a very specific, well documented series of behaviors leading up to copulation in the same way that Drosophila melanogaster does. The inciting incident for this whole episode was I was looking for papers discussing the Blatella Germanica behavior, which, you know, I know very well. Like, I took an insect behavior course for my master's, and this is one of the things that we talked about. Because there was somebody who had Blatella Germanica specimens, we were able to get them in class, we watched this happen. So then I found a paper published in 2011 called Conservation of Fruitless's Role as Master Regulator of Male Courtship Behavior from Cockroaches to Flies. And I was like, huh, interesting. And essentially, this... Paper was written, these researchers wanted to investigate whether and how much the fruitless gene, well established, well described in Drosophila melanogaster, would also regulate courtship behavior in another insect. Reasoning behind the choice of Blatilla germanica, the whole stereotyped courtship sequence of both Drosophila melanogaster and Blatilla germanica are at this point exhaustively well documented. Um, so if we know that this, if we know about this gene, we've described it very well in one species, and we know that it strongly correlates to a really well documented courtship sequence in an also otherwise well studied model organism, how does it work in this other really well studied model organism with a well documented courtship sequence, right? And, and part of what they talked about in their sort of introductory issue is that cockroaches are, in the overall insect phylogenetic tree, relatively basal compared to the highly derived Drosophila. And essentially, to describe this without getting annoyingly deep into it... Long insect phylogeny interlude ends in about five minutes. When we talk about basal groups inside of a phylogeny, to establish the phylogeny is like, if you've ever seen a tree of life diagram, that's a phylogeny. It's essentially a representation of the branching pattern of lineages through time to reconstruct how different groups of organisms have evolved and how they're related to each other in evolutionary terms, right? Right. And when we talk about derived and basal... We're talking about the relative position of groups that we're interested in relative to sort of the original ancestor that we're identifying. So for insects, there was at some point an insectoid ancestor from which all insects have descended, right? Right. And so essentially the story of insect phylogeny, as it is sort of broadly accepted at this point, is that the first point of divergence, right led to the aterogotes or the wingless insects so before the evolution of wings and then all the other insects and then that group of insects that led to the dragonflies and damselflies the odonata and mayflies ephemeroptera these used to be grouped together as paleoptera or like old wings right paleooptera I I have a vague memory of reading a paper that was like we shouldn't be grouping these two together after all but those are basically those are the first lineages that evolved after the evolution of wings and then after that we got this big clade known as polyneoptera and I realized that the specific taxonomic names of these groups probably are not relevant or interesting to almost anybody but My background is in insect systematics, so if I didn't, like, say, oh, the Polyneoptera, it's like, what did I even do a master's for?
1: Look, our listeners knew what they were getting into when they tuned into the They
0: knew what they were getting into. This is the podcast. And so Polyneoptera includes a lot of very familiar groups, most particularly Orthoptera, which are grasshoppers, crickets, katydids, etc., and then a bunch of other orders, a lot of which have historically been placed in Orthoptera. So, like, a lot of, like, at one point, people thought that mantises were just weird grasshoppers, and really why that's important is that it includes my darling group, Dixioptera, which includes mantises, termites, and cockroaches, as we have discussed before, and inevitably will again. And so, as, as another extremely niche nerd note, some people might come for me saying cockroaches termites and mantises on the basis that phylogenetically speaking it is now understood that termites are highly specialized cockroaches but my opinion is that especially or at least in relatively colloquial or informal speech when we're talking about visually and ecologically cohesive groups phylogenetically speaking cockroaches might include the termites but I think that cockroach as a functional unit separate from termites is still a useful framework. Colon, a dissertation by Charles Wallace. Mm-hmm. It's like here here's a here's an actual good analogy that I'm gonna use. It's like when people will be like, is a tomato a fruit or a vegetable? And then people will be like, aha, it is a fruit. Because botanically speaking, it is a fruit because it has seeds. But culinarily speaking, it's a vegetable. Right. And my thing is we can't start calling tomatoes a fruit and getting mad at people for saying that tomato is not a fruit unless we're willing to to be complete about it and like a cucumber is a fruit. Pumpkin is a fruit. Right, right, right. right. Botanically speaking, vegetables don't exist botanically. But if I'm in the kitchen, you know, preparing a pasta sauce, botanical classification doesn't matter to me. I'm thinking right. culinary categories. And in that category, I am going to make a pasta sauce out of tomatoes. I'm not going to make a pasta sauce out of strawberries, mm. even though they're both red fruits. In, in that sense, at least, if we're thinking about phylogenetically, termites are highly specialized cockroaches. But in the culinary realm of like talking about ecologically cohesive groups, termites are very dissimilar from cockroaches. And that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying to you all. Colon. A dissertation by Charles Wallace. Anyway. Long insect phylogeny interlude is now over. I'm not going to get deep into the methodology of this paper because, frankly, it's, it's highly technical... It's a technical, it's a technical paper, right? So I'm not going to get deeply into the methodology because I think it would be kind of boring to listen to. And also secretly, you know, I don't feel confident enough in very specific technical genetic stuff not to trip over myself. But in essence, they cloned and sequenced RNA from different parts of the cockroaches bodies, looking at the transcripts of the fruitless gene. And then they did a knockdown where that's, you know, genetic manipulation where they prevent you know the expression of a gene and in this case they did a knockdown to stop the expression of the fruitless gene just meaning that it's it's like turning the off switch on that gene right so they first observed unchanged cockroach males with two theoretically sexually interesting female cockroaches and then they did this genetic manipulation on separate cockroaches and they put those male cockroaches in with again theoretically sexually interesting female cockroaches and observed whether they performed any of the typical courtship behaviors. And what they found is that the males without the typical fruitless expression didn't demonstrate the typical wing raising behavior. And none of the females who were put in with them were later observed with sperm in their spermathecae, which are essentially a spermatheca is basically just a little sperm reservoir So like when you mate, but maybe you don't want to fertilize your eggs yet, you can put the sperm, you can store it inside your spermatheca. Not you as in the listener, because you're probably a human and we don't have that. Right. But if you were a cockroach, you would. And so the paper authors concluded that there was strong evidence that the fruitless gene is implicated in the courtship behavior of both cockroaches and flies, despite the fact that the lineage that eventually led to modern cockroaches branched off way earlier in the evolution of insects than fruit flies. Essentially, they found first that the fruitless gene, even though the specific behaviors were very different in Drosophila melanogaster and Blatilla germanica, that specific gene, the expression of that de- gene, did still contribute to following through on courtship behavior, where like the the absence of sperm in the females is taken as evidence that there were no successful matings that went on between them, right? Like there was no transfer of sperm because there was no courtship. And so they found that that gene, even though, you know, cockroaches and Drosophila melanogaster are separated by a large amount of evolutionary space and time, that gene was implicated in courtship behaviors in both of them. And from that, they concluded that the fruitless gene is probably probably, extremely well conserved as in it has been present and stayed largely the same in terms of uh, you know its function in the organisms that have it for an extremely long time because for it to be present in both cockroaches and melanogaster, it would have had to have been present in a very old ancestor in the total lineage of insects
1: very deep in the uh, family tree
0: very deep in the family tree And so, uh, in conclusion, interesting. And also in conclusion, you would not like to live in a world that didn't have cockroaches in it. And I also would not like to live in that world.
1: Yeah, we'd have a lot of serious problems.
0: We'd have all kinds of problems. Like, I know if you think that they're gross. Listen, I'm number one cockroach fan. Cockroaches are my best friend. Sorry to my actual best friend. I don't mean it. It's a joke. But I, you know, I've been jump scared by a cockroach before. Where you turn around and you see one on your floor and you're like, how did you get here? And the answer is, our doors aren't actually 100% well sealed. Mm. And we live in Arizona where it's warm all the time. Right. You know. Like, I get it. I understand. I was one of you. I used to hate cockroaches. But then I opened my heart and I understood that they're also part of God's glorious creation. Or if you're an atheist, they're part of the secular miracle that is life on earth. Imagine how unlikely this all is. Unbelievable. (laughs) They're just little guys and they deserve to be alive. They're
1: doing their best. They're doing their
0: best. Plus some of them are so cute and so beautiful. And listen, you might think the Platella Germanica is just a humble little roach. It's not very big. It's not very flashy, but it's alive and it's doing its best. (laughs) Anyway, if you want to see the Platella Germanica courtship, I did find a video on YouTube. A lot of negative comments. Unbelievable. Philistines, man. Philistines. Unbelievable. Uh, but that will be in the show notes as well as all of the sources that I've used for this episode, which is a fair few. Um, yeah, well, happy belated Valentine's Day. Don't sneakily clasp your genitals with anybody else's. Be very upfront about it. That's my real lesson.
1: Yes. Yes. Cons- we, we at ASAP pod are very big fans of consent. We
0: love cockroaches, but we don't endorse their methods of initiating copulation for humans anyway. For cockroaches, yes. you know, it's none of my business. Okay. Well, Tessa, where can the people find you? As
1: long as the website continues to last, I am on Twitter at SpacerMase, S-P-A-C-E-R-M-A-S-E, and also on my website at TessaFisher.com.
0: The podcast is on Twitter, as long as it's around, at ASABpod, or at our website where we post show notes and transcripts for every episode, ASABpodcast.com. Our music is by friend of the show and former guest, Nicole Petkovich. We have an interest form if you would like to be a guest on the show that you can find by going to our website, or you can email us at asappod at gmail.com. And if you like the show, please tell other people about it. That's word of mouth is pretty much the number one way the podcast grow.
1: And until next time, keep on sciencing.